in this for many, many months, <clears throat> and so I want to go all the way back in eternity past. The Bible teaches that God chose us or predestined us before the foundation of the world to be saved. Then at a point in time, he called us. It was an effectual call. It was a sovereign call. He took out our heart of stone, gave us a heart of flesh. He regenerated us. When God did that, we then were freed to be able to personally place our faith in Jesus. We personally repented. We trusted in Jesus. The moment we did that, we were justified freely. We were counted as not guilty before God. We were adopted into God's family. And then we started the process of the Christian life. And over the past four weeks, we talked about sanctification. Talk about, oh, Trina, I forgot the clicker or whoever's back there. Um, it's in that drawer underneath the, um, it's like in that drawer over there. No, that drawer where all the remote controls are. It's, you pull out the file drawer, and the it's the top drawer. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about perseverance of the saints. Now, terminology matters. Because if you have grown up, especially in Baptistic-type churches, and maybe not even in Baptist churches, you've probably heard the phrase or the term, thanks, Janae, once saved, always saved. Anybody heard that terminology? Once saved, always saved. Now, theologically, that's accurate. Once you are saved, you're always saved. But that mantra has been abused or misapplied or distorted to mean this. Every person that makes a public profession of faith is automatically saved. Now, we're going to talk about that tonight. So the terminology that we use at Emmanuel is probably two different terms. We don't usually use the term once saved, always saved, although that's theologically accurate. We use the term either eternal security or perseverance of the saints. So let me give you a definition of what this means, what this term is, okay? So it goes, we're going to talk tonight about, here's the point. If God chose you for salvation, and he did everything to bring you in, there's nothing you can do to get yourself out. He's going to keep you in that salvation, okay? So here's a definition. This is actually from our doctrinal statement. Those God has accepted in Christ effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit and given the precious faith of His elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Now the important term is this. You can neither totally nor finally fall away can you i'm going to i'm going to ask a question tonight and i'm going to answer it but let me just ask you tonight is there periods of time in your life where you can temporarily fall away or backslide yes will that be a total falling away no will it be a final falling away no so there are some alternative views out there that different churches believe about this very controversial doctrine. So, for example, Arminians 
i.e. those that are more in the Wesleyan, the Nazarene, the Assembly of God, that stream of evangelicalism believes that because you used your free will to accept Christ, you can use your free will to walk away from Christ. They won't necessarily say you can lose your salvation. They will say you choose to give it away or you choose to walk away, that you're not eternally secure. There is the possibility that you could somehow not have that eternal life. Lutherans also believe the same concept. They believe that you can lose your salvation. Roman Catholics believe you can lose your salvation. You need to have the sacramental system in order to keep yourself in God's good graces. Um, so there's a lot of alternative views out there that don't believe the way our church believes in perseverance of the saints. So the question is, why do we believe this? Why do we believe that you cannot fully or finally or totally fall away from a state of grace? Well, there's a lot of biblical truths, and so instead of just being in one particular passage of Scripture tonight, we're going to be kind of all over the place, but most of the Scriptures are going to be on your sheet and on the screen. Um, we're going to get to Hebrews in a little bit here, um, but let's just look at some truths that the Bible teaches about our salvation. So truth number one the perseverance of the saints does not depend upon our own free will because of God's decree and predestining us for salvation. What we're saying is this. If God sovereignly chose you for salvation and predestined you, you did not use your free will to get into salvation. God chose you to be saved. And therefore, because God chose you to be saved, you can't use your free will to get yourself out of salvation. God did it from first to last. He is the one who doesn't change. And so here's the point. If God saved you, he's going to keep you saved because it was his plan from eternity past. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. God does not change. It's not like God changes his mind. It's kind of like, um, you remember those old cartoons? I think it was Foghorn Leghorn, or maybe it was Bugs Bunny. She loves me. She loves me not. The little flower, she loves me. She loves me not. It's not like God's up in heaven like, I love him. I love him not. And then like when they get to the end of the flower and there's like nothing there, okay, I guess God doesn't love me anymore. It's not that God changes God has a sovereign, and we use the word immutable or unchangeable, decree of those whom he's going to save. And Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now we spent a few weeks on predestination way back when we started, so I'm not going to go back and rehash, but you may want to go back and look at your notes, or you may want to go back and watch or listen to when we talked about predestination. But eternal security, or the idea that you can't fall away, is rooted in the fact that God chose you, and He's not going to allow you to give up your salvation or for you to lose that. So the Father elected and predestined you and will keep you saved. Okay, now Jesus, number two, Jesus continually makes intercession for his elect. Jesus is going to make sure that you stay saved. Why? Well, we spent a lot of weeks on John chapter 6, but let's just look at it again. 
John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Let's just stop right there. If the Father has given you to Jesus and you come to him, are you going to be cast out? No, because Jesus just said right there, you'll never be cast out. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you were given to Jesus by the Father in sovereign election, Jesus will hold you and he will not lose you but he will raise you up on the last day. Jesus is not going to lose any of those that were given to him by the Father. And so Jesus is in heaven right now praying for you, interceding on your behalf, representing you. He purchased you with his blood, and so you are his. Now, number three, and this is a difficult passage of Scripture, but it's, it's one we need to talk about. God promised to keep us eternally secure. God promised to do this. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 20, we find this promise that God promised. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, He that just in just a few moments here. So that by two unchangeable things, which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner, curtain, the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now don't ask me who Melchizedek is. That's a study for another time. Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 deals with Melchizedek, and it's a very complicated answer. But here's the three things we see in this passage of Scripture. God cannot go back on His promise. It says God had an unchangeable character of His purpose. God guaranteed it with an oath. God cannot lie. So if God promised to save us and God said, I have an eternal purpose to save you and God cannot lie, God cannot go back on his word of what he promised to do. When God says, I'm going to save my people, he promises that he's going to do that and he will not go back upon his word. And God has given this promise, as the writer here says, as an anchor for the soul. An anchor so that we we don't drift. It's that encouragement. And then Jesus has gone into heaven. He's died in our place. He's gone into heaven as our great high priest. And he's preparing our place so that we can follow after him when when we die. He's gone there. Now, I'm going to share with you a very interesting passage of Scripture. Isaiah 49, 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, let's ask the theological question. Does God the Father have hands? No, because He's spirit. What does it mean that God has engraved you on the palm of His hands? What does it mean to engrave? It's almost like a tattoo or an engraving. What does God put in the palm of His hands? You. Impermanent, indelible ink. 
Why his hand? Because that's where he holds you in his grip. And if God has engraved you in the palm of his hands, it's a very symbolic and poetic way of saying God has got you so much in his grip that it's almost like he's engraved your name in his hands. And, and you, God would have to chop off his hand in order for you to be lost, and God's not going to do that. Okay, so it's a very powerful way of saying God keeps us secure. So we've talked about the role of God the Father. The Father has elected us. The Father's predestined us. The Father's made this promise to us. The Father's engraved us in the palm of His hands. We've talked about Jesus the Son. Jesus died for us. He purchased us. We've been given to Jesus. But then there's the third person of the Trinity. Who's the third person of the Trinity? That is the Holy Spirit. So number four, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us forever. So when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and cannot leave you. Holy Spirit cannot leave you. What does Jesus say in John 14, 14 through 16? I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you. To be with you how long? Forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because the world neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and He will be in you. The Holy Spirit will always be in you. He'll never be taken away from you. As a matter of fact, when, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit is the down payment or the deposit or the, the guarantee that God gives you to make sure that you will go to heaven. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13-14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here's what it means. It means that the Father has promised to save you in eternity past. He predestined you. He gave you to Jesus. Jesus died for you. Jesus is representing you in heaven right now, and He's given you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And so you have the guarantee of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to keep you permanently and finally and totally saved. They're going to keep you saved, all three persons of the Trinity. So theologically, yes, once saved, always saved. But what does this doctrine not mean? Because, based upon experience, personally what maybe you've gone through or what you've seen others go through, you may have some questions about some things related to just living the Christian life. What does this doctrine not mean? So, what perseverance of the saints does not mean? The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not mean that we won't ever backslide or fall into periods of major disobedience. So let me just ask you a question. We've spent four weeks on sanctification. Are we ever going to be perfect in this life? Can Christians commit some major sins? Can you sin so bad that you lose your salvation? No. So it doesn't mean that just because you are eternally secure that you're never going to sin again and that you may not fall into periods of sin. So let's talk about some of these things that may happen 
to a Christian, a true Christian, a true person who has been regenerated, who's been called, who's been justified. So, so number one, we may fall into grievous sins for a period of time because of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay. I want you to think, about who's, who are the members of the Holy Trinity? The Father, the Son, the Spirit. Who are the members of the unholy Trinity? The world, the flesh, the devil. As a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation, but you have three real enemies that are going to come against you. The world's going to come against you. Your own flesh is going to come against you. And the devil's going to come against you. And sometimes they come in fast and hard and hot. And you may give in to temptation and fall into a period, maybe even a prolonged period of sin. True believers can fall into a temporary, the key word being temporary, period of sin. Because remember, the doctrine says you cannot fully or finally or totally fall away. You may backslide periodically, but we're going to talk about what happens when, that, when you do that. So, number one, you could fall into a period, a temporary period of grievous sin. Number two, you may neglect the means of grace that God has given you to grow in holiness. We talked about, what are the means of grace that we talked about a few weeks ago? The public means of grace are being part of a worship service where you're sitting under sound preaching and you're sitting under sound teaching and you're being together with the church family and you're receiving that encouragement with being in a church family. That's the outward public means of grace. The private means of grace is doing your what we call it a quiet time or personal Bible study, personal devotion. If you neglect those things, if you're not part, if you're not part of a church family each week and you're not reading your Bible and you're praying, it's going to be easier for you to fall into periods of disobedience. True Christians can neglect those things and fall into periods of disobedience by neglecting those things. God has given us those things to help us grow. When you don't use those things, when you don't take advantage of those things, you're more susceptible to backsliding. Number three, when... understand the implications of this but somehow when we sin we sadden or grieve the holy spirit now why is it grieving the holy spirit why isn't it like we grieve the father or we grieve the son but that would be true but who's the one that lives inside of us our body is a temple of the holy spirit and when we fall into sin because the spirit lives in us we grieve him we sadden him by our sin now, again, I don't understand the emotional complexity of the Holy Spirit. I just know there's a verse that says we grieve Him. And one of the ways, if you read in context there in Ephesians, the way that you grieve the Holy Spirit is when you fall into backbiting and unforgiveness and bitterness and, and just conflict and being angry and not forgiving. That's what grieves the Holy Spirit. Also, you may have experienced this before. Number four, in times of backsliding, we may lose the joy of our salvation and feel distant from the Father. Now notice how carefully I said that. You lose the joy of your salvation. 
I didn't say you lose your salvation. You can lose the joy of your salvation. Meaning that if I'm in a period of backsliding, if I'm in a period of disobedience, if I'm in a prolonged period of, 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 of being in major sin, I'm not going to really appreciate my salvation. I'm going to feel guilty. God's going to feel distant. I, I'm going to be kind of numb to the things of God. Okay. This is what happened when um, David sinned against Bathsheba. And he committed adultery with her, and then he had her husband Uriah killed. And he goes and he confesses the sin in Psalm 51, 8 through 12. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. And here's the key verse. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, when David sinned, he lost not his salvation, but the joy of his salvation. He needed that to be restored. Okay? So you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can fall into major sin. You can feel distant from God. You can lose the joy of your salvation. You can neglect doing the things that God has called you to do to grow. And then number five... We can go into a period of having hardened hearts and a seared conscience. This is where it gets scary. A period, again, not permanently, but a period. You can go into a time where you have a hard heart or you have a conscience where you're just, your conscience isn't bothered, your heart's not soft. You just kind of say, you know what? I don't really care about the things of God. I don't care about the things of Christ. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm just going to live however I want to live. And you, you kind of get numb or, or deadened to those things. Uh, Psalm 32, 3-4, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When I was silent, when I didn't confess my sin, when I didn't go before it, I just felt this heaviness. I felt this, like, deadness. Uh, Psalm 73, 21 through 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You just acted like an, you just kind of acted on your animal instinct. You didn't have any desire to follow God. Okay. Here's number six. We can bring public scandal upon ourselves, our families, and our church. Can true Christians commit grievous sins? Yes. Can true Christians commit grievous sins that scandalize their family, bring shame upon their family, bring shame upon their church? Yes. Does that mean they lose their salvation? No, it just means that they did something stupid that brought a scandal upon their family. Again, back to David. <clears throat> what did David do? David committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband Uriah killed. He hid it, thought he got away with it. Nathan the prophet comes to him, tells that parable about the guy that steals the other guy's little lamb. David gets mad and says, that guy needs to be put to death. And then Nathan says, you're the man. And then Nathan begins to tell David the consequences of his sin. And basically he tells David, <coughs> what you've done in private, with you and this woman, you've brought scandal upon your family and upon the whole nation of Israel. So in 2 Samuel 
chapter 12, verses 10 through 15. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I did this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. So there was, what what was the fallout from David's sin? There would be warfare in his family, which you see played out. His son raped his daughter, and then... There was the revenge that was taken, Absalom and all that. Absalom, his son, ends up having sex out in public on the top of the, of the, the castle there where everybody could see. And then the child that was born died. So Nathan said to, to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You're not going to die. You're not going to lose your salvation. But you're going to have to deal with the major fallout from your sin. You've brought scandal upon yourself. You've brought scandal upon your family. You've brought scandal upon the nation of Israel. So just because we believe in eternal security doesn't mean that we don't believe that there can be major consequences or fallout from grievous sins that Christians commit. Christians can commit grievous sins and not lose their salvation but deal with the consequences of those sins. You're still forgiven. You're still going to heaven. You're still secure but you may have to deal with the consequences of sinful actions. Okay, what happens if you are in a period of prolonged rebellion, prolonged backsliding? What, God, what, what may, may God do? Here's number seven. If we continue in a period of rebellion, God will discipline us for our good. Okay, the key word is discipline. Not judge. God will not judge us because he's already judged our sins in Christ and we will not face judgment because Jesus paid for our sins, but we will be disciplined. Okay? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11 tells us what this looks like. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So we're talking about true believers here. Those whom God loves, those who are sons and daughters of God, he's going to discipline you. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there who his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respect the spirits. Chapter 12, Discipline. A lot of people over the years have come to me and said, um, what does it look like for God to discipline me? And my answer is, I don't know what it looks like for you personally. Okay. Here's the truth. God, God disciplines us, but here's what we don't know. It may be different for each person. God sovereignly disciplines you the way he sees fit for your particular situation. And just like the, the extremity of the crime, the discipline may be more based upon the grievousness of the crime 
the discipline may be more based upon the grievous nature of the crime. So like for David, because his crime was so grievous, he committed adultery and had somebody killed, he committed adultery and murder, his consequences, his discipline was a lot higher. I mean, he had conflict in his family. He had warfare in his family. Um, The baby died. So that was extreme discipline. Um, So the discipline may be extreme. It may be light. God's sovereign over that. We just know that if you are in a period of prolonged rebellion, God may discipline you for your good to get you back. Now, why is he doing it? He's doing it because he loves you. What would be more loving for God? Would it be loving for God to keep you going down that path of rebellion or to be loving for God to discipline you and bring you back? What's more loving, to let you go down that path or to bring you back? It's more loving to bring you back. And so discipline is for our good, okay? So the doctrine of perseverance of the saints says that you will neither totally nor finally fall away from a state of grace, but you'll persevere to the end. It does not mean that you won't go into periods of disobedience, that you won't go into periods of rebellion, that God won't discipline you, that you won't bring scandal. It just means that fully and finally and totally, you won't fall away. Now, let's, and here's a classic passage of Scripture. Philippians 1.6. Oh, here's number 8. I'm sorry. Nevertheless, a true believer will repent and come back to the Lord. If you're truly a believer, you will repent and come back. It may be painful to get back to the Lord, but you will come back. So let's just think about the Trinity here just for a moment again. The Father chose you. The Son chose died for you and is interceding for you the holy spirit lives in you so all three persons of the trinity are keeping you from fully and finally and totally falling away philippians 1 6 i am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of christ jesus if he began that work in you he's going to bring it to completion when did god begin the work Well, you can think about an eternity past when he chose you before the foundation of the world. If he started it way back then, he's going to make sure he carries it all the way through to when Jesus comes back or when you die. Okay? So what are some scriptures, just some, some basic scriptures that teach eternal security? That you cannot fully or finally lose or totally lose your salvation or fall away from a state of grace. John 5, 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. If you believe in Jesus, you've passed from death to life. You can't go back. Now, here's the question that I often hear. Like those that believe you can lose your salvation. This is not in your notes, so I'm going off on a tangent. But um, are Arminian brothers and sisters who believe you can somehow walk away from salvation? If you can walk away from salvation or somehow you can lose it, the question then becomes, okay, can you gain it back? Well, maybe, yes, you can gain it back, but then you can lose it again. Okay, so you're fluctuating between a state of being saved, not saved, saved, not saved. Okay, if you're regenerated and you're given a new heart and you're brought to spiritual life, what has happened to your old life? It has died in your new creation. If you lose your salvation, do you go back to a state of deadness? 
and then have to be regenerated again? And if you're regenerated again, do you lose it? I mean, so there's a lot of things that are problematic about the state that happens to you when you get saved. When you're regenerated, it's, a cha- it's an internal change. When you're justified, it's a legal declaration where God makes it once and for all. So if you can keep flowing out of death to life and, and moving back and forth, really what does Jesus say here? You have eternal life and you've passed from death to life. He doesn't say, and then you can go back again. It's once and for all. Okay, this is a very powerful one. John 10, 27-30. My sheep, this is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now let me just talk about a little bit of the language here that Jesus uses. I give them eternal life. So if Jesus gives you eternal life, can it be taken away from you? No. You will never perish. That word never there is what we call a double negative. And you can say it like this, no, never, no, not ever. You won't ever. And what does the word perish mean? Does it just mean to die, to cease to exist? No, when when the the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John, uses the word perish, it means to die in hell, to spend eternity in hell under God's judgment. Why perish? Will we not ever perish in hell? Because no one's able to snatch us out of Jesus' hand. And why? Because the Father has given us to Jesus. When did God give us to Jesus? Before the foundation of the world. Is anybody greater than God? No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So I often say you're in the double grip. You're in the grip of Jesus You're in the grip of the Father. No one can come and pluck you out of either one of the Father or Jesus' hands. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So you are eternally secure in the sovereign grip of the Father and the Son, and you can never, no, not ever perish. What happens if Satan comes and tries to pluck me out? Can't happen. Now, I've heard Arminians and others say, well, that's true, but you can choose to tell God, let go of me, and God will honor your request and let go of you. And then you can walk away. Okay, show me a passage of Scripture for that, please. Well, it just, it just has to be that way because we have free will. Well, show me a passage of Scripture. For, well, well, just it, it, can't, it can't be that because I have to have some part to play in it. Show me the passage of Scripture. What does it say? You're in the double grip. Okay, Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's a great question, Paul. Okay, is there anything that can separate us? He gives a list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including yourself, I added that, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Separate us from the love of God. And what's the definitive answer? Nothing in all of creation. The devil can't, yourself can't, nothing can. If you are saved, you will remain saved. Colossians 3, 
Did I skip the Colossians passage? Is Colossians on your sheet? And I'll just skip it. It's on mine. We'll go to 1 Peter um, 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's in heaven, that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God caused you to be born again. He's got that inheritance waiting for you. It's not going to spoil. It's there on permanent reserve. And in the meantime, God's power is guarding you so that you will get that inheritance. God will make sure you get it. Okay, now, I knew this question would come up because we've talked about our Arminian brothers and sisters that say that you can lose your salvation, you can walk away. So here's the question that maybe you're asking tonight. What about the passages that appear to teach one can either lose salvation or walk away from the faith? How do you deal with those passages of Scripture that appear to teach that? Now, I use the word appear to teach that. I don't think they teach that. I want to teach you guys a concept. There is a biblical concept called apostasy. Okay. You know what the Greek word for fall away is? It's aposteia. We get the word apostasy from it. So the classic passage of Scripture that a lot of people go to to say, ah, you can lose your salvation or you can walk away from your salvation is Hebrews chapter 6. So I am going to ask you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm going to walk us through this. But before I do that, I just want to read 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. There were some in the church that left the faith. Why did they leave the faith? They weren't truly saved. If they had been truly saved, they would have remained but the fact that they left showed that they weren't truly saved in the, in the first place. So here's my, let me just lay my cards on the table and then I'll, we'll, we'll go through the Bible and I'll show you. Okay. When you see a person that professes faith in Christ walk away or fall away, here's the point. They did not lose their salvation. They did not walk away from salvation. They never had salvation in the first place. They were never truly saved. Let me say it this way. They had a profession of faith, but they did not have possession of true faith. They faked it. They went through the motions. They said it. They may have been baptized. They may have walked forward in an altar call. They may have even taught Sunday school or gone on a mission trip. But in their heart of hearts, they had never truly been regenerated. They never had true, genuine, saving faith in Christ it was in name only it was a profession and therefore when they fell away they're not falling away from what they had they're falling away from what they never had the profession but not the salvation does that make sense that's what we believe happens from time to time when you see people that at one time claimed to be a Christian but now are living like the devil and have repudiate, repudiated everything they believe we don't believe they lost their salvation. We believe they apostatized. 
They're apostates. Now, what's an apostate? Okay, I'm glad you asked. So let's turn to Hebrews. I need to get there. You guys are there ahead of me. Hebrews chapter 6. Now, Hebrews is a difficult passage of Scripture, and we're coming kind of to the middle of some teaching here. But let me just read this, and then we're going we're gonna to talk about this. Let's start with verse 4. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their contempt or to their own harm, and holding them up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to, for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Many use this passage to say, you can lose your salvation. If you fall away, you've lost it, it's impossible to ever be saved again, You've lost your salvation. Now, I'm going to argue just the opposite. The writer of Hebrews gives a list of five benefits that these people have experienced in their proximity to Jesus and in the church. But as we'll see by the language used here, they were never truly saved in the first place. Now, it looks like they were saved. But let's talk about the language here. Let's just walk through this passage and let's look at these five benefits. So, it's impossible in the case of those who, what's number one? First, they have been enlightened. Enlightened, that's an interesting thing. They've heard the gospel. They've understood the facts of the Bible. They may have even memorized some scripture. But being enlightened does not mean you're saved. It just means you have knowledge of the Bible. There are no words here in this list of five benefits that are normally used to talk about salvation. You have no words like repentance, trusted, justified, forgiven, regenerated, adopted, none of that stuff. So let me ask you a question. Do these things happen among unreached people groups in South Asian villages that have never heard Jesus, or does this happen around people who've grown up in church and have heard the truth? It's the second. People that have never heard don't fall away from these things that have happened to them. They've never heard. These are people that have been exposed to the gospel. These are blessings that come to people who have been around church. So number one, They've been enlightened. They've learned truth. They've heard sermons. Secondly, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, we don't exactly know what this gift is, but they just tasted it. They sampled it. When you go to Cold Stone ice cream, got your attention now, like, I want ice cream. You know, like if there's a flavor there that you want to taste, they have the little plastic spoon, what do they do? You can sample it before you get a big, what are the three sizes? 
They had weird names like, I don't know, what is it? Like it, love it, and gotta have it. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Like, but yeah, like it, love it. Gotta. So, but they give you those little plastic spoons. I can taste it. Okay, so you're just tasting it. You're sampling it to see if you like that. Okay, I like that. And then you buy the big thing and you engulf it. Okay. In salvation, do you merely taste Jesus and taste the gospel, or do you receive them fully? The idea here is that they they haven't truly received Christ as Savior. They've just gotten close enough to Jesus to kind of sample him, try him on for size figure out if they they want to have Christ as Savior, but they've never really received Him. Third, they were, they were sharers or partakers in the Holy Spirit. Now, it's very interesting. That may sound like, well, there you go, Sean, they're saved. They had the Holy Spirit. But may I, I want to show you that Greek word there, they shared in the Holy Spirit, is never used anywhere else in the Bible to talk about the Holy Spirit in a salvific way. The Bible uses words like sealed by the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Holy Spirit, indwelt. That word in the Greek just means they have a close association. In other words, they may have seen the power of the Holy Spirit evident in a worship service. They've seen things. They've seen things in the church family where they've maybe even seen the fruit of the Spirit. They've seen the power of the Spirit, but they never received the Holy Spirit into them in an indwelling type of way. Okay, fourth, they tasted, this is the same word again, the goodness of the Word of God. Now, what does that mean? They tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They heard good preaching. They may have sat in a worship service where there was good preaching and solid teaching, and they heard it. They benefited from being in Sunday school or hearing the gospel presentations. And then number five, they tasted the powers of the age to come. If you go back to chapter 2, the word for um, powers is the same word used for miracles. They may have even seen miracles. Now I want you to think about these five things. And I want you to think about the Old Testament nation of Israel. And I want to show you five parallels between what this generation he's talking about here and the imagery of the Exodus generation. Were the Israelites enlightened by a pillar of fire to lead them? Yep, Exodus 13, 21. Did the Israelites taste the heavenly gift of manna every day falling from heaven? Yep, Exodus 16, 4. Did not the Israelites experience the presence of the Holy Spirit who rested upon Moses and the leaders in Numbers chapter 11? Did not they receive the goodness of the word when they heard the Ten Commandments when Moses came down from the mountain? Did they not see powerful signs and wonders, the crossing of the Red Sea and the water coming out of the rock? That generation saw a lot. And what happened to that generation? They were not a godly nation that somehow fell away from God. It was a wicked people who had hypocritical and hard hearts, so much so that God punished them by spending 40 years in the wilderness and they never got to enter the promised land. So in the same way today, where do all these things take place? In church. And around Christian people. So, there are people 
who have been around church life enough to know the lingo, to make a profession of faith, to be around good preaching, maybe even been baptized, seen miracles, but never have truly been saved. And then to fall away. Do we have an example of anybody in the Bible that was around stuff like that that fell away? Yes. We do have some biblical examples of this. The first one is a man named Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10 For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. There was a man named Demas who was a traveling missionary partner with Paul. He deserted and left the faith. Why? Because he was in love with this present world. Anybody ever know who a guy named Simon Magus is? Okay, so keep your finger in Hebrews and then turn to Acts, okay? So just kind of jump back and forth. So Acts chapter 8. And the reason why he's called Simon Magus is because he was a magician. He was a sorcerer. Okay, so Acts chapter 8. Uh, let's just start in verse 9, actually. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. I'm going to read this whole thing, and then we're just going to look at this. It's kind of, there is, there is not a lot of conclusive evidence here about Simon Magus, but there's some historical ideas related to what happened to him. But let's just, let's just see what happens here. Is everybody there? Acts 8. Uh, let's start in verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for they, he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You've neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Okay. What do we know about Simon? He's a magician, right? He had the mojo. Okay, he had the... He, had this, he was amazing people, and he was into power, and he said, I'm the greatest, and people flocked to him. And then it says, he believed and got baptized. That's what the faith's value of the text is. He believed and got baptized. Okay, what happened? Peter and John 
come down to Samaria. They lay the hands on the people, and the Holy Spirit comes. And what does Simon say? Ooh, I want that kind of power. I thought I had power when I was a magician. I want that kind of power. So he goes up to Peter and says, hey, I'll pay you for it. I'll pay you for that power because I want to be able to do what you guys are doing. I, and so what's he thinking? I want, to go, I want to be better than I was before when I was a magician. This is going to get me more popularity. It's going to, I can charge people money. I can be the next you know, greatest magician in Samaria. And what does Peter do? Peter gets in his face and says, basically, you're, you're an unrepentant sinner. You're in the bond of iniquity. You need to repent. And what does Simon say? Simon pray himself and say, I repent. What does he say to Peter? You pray for me. He doesn't say, I repent. I was wrong. He says, you pray for me. Now, here's where Acts leads us with an unanswered question. Is Simon Magus an example of a person who, quote-unquote, made a profession of faith, was baptized, and then fell away from the faith because he wasn't truly saved? The Bible leaves us unanswered, but we do know what church history has said about him. He was called the father of heretics. Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, two of the earliest church fathers, basically said that after this, history shows that he never repented and that he shacked up with a prostitute named Helena and became a false teacher. Now, Acts doesn't tell us that. Church history does. So my question is, can somebody, quote-unquote, make a profession of faith and get baptized and then not truly be saved and be in the bond of iniquity? So I would argue that Simon did not, quote-unquote, lose his salvation or walk away from salvation. I would say he was never saved in the first place. Now, who's the greatest example of somebody like this? Judas. Think about those five things that we just looked at in Hebrews. So turn back to Hebrews, those five things that we talked about. Had Judas been enlightened? Had he tasted the heavenly gift? Had he been around good preaching? Had Judas himself cast out demons, probably? Had Judas performed miracles? Was Judas a believer? Ever? Was Judas a believer that somehow lost his salvation? No. He was never a believer. He faked it really, really well. He made a profession of faith, but he had no possession of faith. Then you might say, well, what about Peter? Peter denied Jesus three times. Yes. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? Sovereign election. Luke chapter 22, 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter was chosen. Peter was a true believer. Peter fell into grievous sin, but Jesus prayed for him and said, you're going to repent, and he did. Judas was not chosen. Judas was not a believer. Judas made a profession of faith but did not possess faith. 
he sinned and went and hanged himself. So Judas is an example of the greatest apostate that you're, that you're ever going to see. He didn't lose his salvation. He didn't walk away from salvation. He never had salvation. But he could fake it. And he'd been around enough gospel light and information to know all these blessings. Now let's get back to Hebrews chapter 6. Everybody back there? All right. Now, the very first words in verse 4, it's impossible. It's impossible to bring back to repentance someone who's fallen away. Pastor Sean, what's the Greek word for impossible? Impossible. It doesn't mean improbable. It doesn't mean highly unlikely. It means it's impossible. So don't let that word scare you. It is impossible for this type of person to repent. But the main thing we want to look at is what the, the word says there in verse 6, and then haven't, have fallen away. Fallen away. That's the Greek word apostasy. Where we get the word apostasy to fall away. And this is very, very important. It's a tense in the Greek language that means a decisive, deliberate, willful act of rejection. Here's what it means. It means this. There are people who may at one time make a profession of faith but never had saving faith. And then they come to the point where they decisively, stubbornly dig their heels in in a very hateful way saying, I am rejecting Jesus and they've fallen away permanently, stubbornly to the point where they can never be brought to salvation. So it's a theological reality that there are people that fall away. And it's not a committing of an individual sin. It's not like they committed adultery or they lied or they committed some type of sin. It's a deliberate, willful, prolonged, stubborn, falling away rejection of Christ. And the point is, is they never had salvation in the first place. Because if they were truly saved in the first place, would Jesus allow that to happen? No. Now, why is this apostasy or this falling away so damning? What does the writer of Hebrews say they're doing? Verse 6, And then having fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Basically, what they're saying is that they're like slapping, the cro- slapping Jesus in the face in the cross and basically like spitting in the face of what Jesus did. It's as if before their eyes, Jesus is dying on the cross and they're in the crowd mocking Jesus and spitting on him. In other words, it's the worst treatment that you can have of Jesus. Now what you're seeing right now are people that are committing apostasy. There's a pastor, a former pastor named Joshua Harris. You guys ever heard of Joshua Harris? He wrote, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It was a big book back in the late 90s when I was a youth pastor. He was a reformed pastor of a megachurch in Maryland. 
He was on the speaker circuits. He had a lot of conferences for college students. He would be on the stage with John Piper and with um, David Platt and Matt Chandler and all the, the young and up-and-coming speakers. And so he pastored this huge megachurch. And then about three years ago, he started um, embracing pro-LGBTQ theology. And then a few months later, he wrote an Instagram post basically saying, for you non-Christians out there, I'm no longer a Christian. For you Christians out there, I've committed what Hebrews 6 calls the sin of apostasy. I am rejecting Jesus. And so now he's an apostate. And he actually has a ministry to help people come out of Christianity and to deny the faith. Derek Webb. He was one of the lead singers of the, of the Christian band. These I have a friend. Some of you, I've told you this before. He and I did podcasts together. He and I um, have done debates together. I've never met him in person, but we're a Facebook friend. We've talked on the phone. Um, he and I have, over the, about the past five years, on my podcast, I've been on his podcast. We've been on some YouTube debates. Um, he was an elder in his church. He, was, um, he wrote some seminary papers, and, and I looked at them. Back in the fall... He basically became an apostate and said, I'm rejecting Christianity altogether. And I was never saved in the first place. And you can't talk me into becoming a Christian. I know exactly what I'm doing. And I reached out to him and said, I don't know what you're going through, but I'm praying for you. And then I listened to his podcast where he talked about his journey into not believing in God anymore. So this hap is happening more and more where people are saying, I never had salvation in the first place. And the words they'll use is, it didn't sit well with me. That's what my friend said. He goes, he listened to his podcast, and he just says, the whole time I was a Christian, it just didn't sit well with me. And I knew there was something off. And now I'm finally free because I no longer believe in God. And then he goes, don't try to tell me all the arguments. I know that there, you believe in there's a hell, and you believe it's eternal, and you believe Jesus is the only way. I used to believe that. I don't believe that now. And if I burn in hell... So what? I don't believe in it. I know you do. So that's apostasy. It's not a losing of what you had, i.e. true salvation. It's a, you never had salvation in the first place, and you're falling away in a very deliberate, arrogant, stubborn way and saying, I'm rejecting everything that I once professed, even though you never possessed it. I hope that makes sense in what apostasy is. Yes, you have a question. Do you have a question or there's a Facebook question? Okay, Trina, what's your question? It is progressive Christianity. Yeah, and what they're calling it is they're calling, the word they're calling is deconstructing. You need to be familiar with that word deconstructing. There are, what they would say is they deconstructed from Christianity to either progressive Christianity where it's really not Christianity but they still want to hold on to it or they totally deconstructed to where they're now no longer a Christian. Now, 
Dr. James White, who I listened to, who's my professor, he doesn't call it progressive Christianity, he calls it regressive. It's not, they're, not progress, they're not progressing, they're, they're regressing. And so, yes, the terminology that you will hear is deconstructing. For example, you guys know the, the, the Christian group DC Talk? Okay. One of the guys, not Toby Mack, and not uh, Kevin Max, the guy with the higher voice. Kevin Max has deconstructed, and now he's no longer a Christian. So you have people coming, former pastors, former Christian artists, people that you would never expect are saying, I was never a Christian in the first place. I've gone through this period of deconstruction, and now I'm free to believe that I'm no longer a Christian, and, I can, and I'm happy with that. So it's, it's the word deconstruction. Or as Joshua Harris would say, I'm actually committing apostasy. He knows exactly. I mean, he, used to, he goes, the biblical term is apostasy. He actually used it, wasn't afraid to use it. Now, it's interesting that the writer here gives a parable from agriculture about good fruit and bad fruit. Verses 7 and 8, For the land that strunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated, receives a blessing from it. it bears, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being burned, and its end is to be burned. Um, so if you think about the parable of the soils, what he's basically saying here is there are two responses to the warning about apostasy that prove the true spiritual condition of a person. Number one, the truly saved person will receive the word of the gospel, it will take root in their soul, they will produce fruit that lasts, and they'll receive the eternal blessing of God. In other words, if you're truly saved, there will be fruit. It doesn't say what quantity of fruit, but there will be fruit. The, apo- excuse me, the apostate, they'll reject the truth, They'll not bear fruit, and in the end, their, their end is hell. Now, apostates are those who rebelliously, persistently, and arrogantly deny Jesus after having made a profession of faith. Their falling away proves that they were not genuinely saved in the first place. The damning danger of apostasy is that it is impossible to repent and come to Christ. On the other hand, genuine believers are those who consistently, persistently, and humbly love others, serve others, and demonstrate lasting fruit. All right. I think we, we may run out of time, which I didn't think we would, but we're going to move through. We've got 20 minutes. Um, let me stop there. Are there any questions on Facebook? Or are there any questions from you before we move on? Yes, Brent. I'll restate your question for the audience. For the, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira, I don't know if I would put them in the same category. I think that was discipline that, that was death. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they lied to the Holy Spirit and they kept the money back. Again, Acts reports what happens and sometimes Luke doesn't give the theology behind what happened. Um, I think with Simon Magus, we, we also don't have the full... But I think Ananias and Sapphira, I would say they were saved, but they were disciplined, and sometimes the discipline the Lord uses is death. He can take you out if you're, you still go to heaven, but he may take you out of this earth because you're a hindrance to the kingdom. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Now, perseverance of the saints does mean that you are eternally secure and God will keep you saved. So, God, by His grace, will work in you to ensure that you endure to the end. 
Because the Bible does say those who endure to the end will be saved. And so some people would look at that and say, well, if it's your responsibility to endure. If you don't endure, you're not going to be saved. So you've got to endure. If you don't endure, you could possibly not be saved and lose your salvation. So the responsibility is upon you to endure. That's the way the Arminian would say. You've got the responsibility to endure. Our view is, yes, you must endure to the end, but God's going to make sure you do. And He's going to work in you the grace to endure. He's not going to let you give up. Well, how do you know that? Let me give you a couple of verses here. So 1 Corinthians 1, 7-9, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful through Jesus Christ to sustain you to the end. Who sustains whom? Do you sustain yourself to the end? No, God sustains you to the end. He'll make sure you get there, guiltless, blameless. 1 Thessalonians um, 5, 23-24 Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Faithful to do what? Make sure that you're blameless on that final day. 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us His Spirit. Again, the Spirit lives in us. The Spirit's going to work in us. The Spirit's not going to be taken from us. And then Jude 24 and 25 now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling fully or finally and to I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me God's going to work in our hearts grace that we will not turn from Him. Okay, so let's make this practical tonight. How do we persevere by God's sovereign grace? There is a responsibility on you to use the means of grace God has given you to grow. God will make sure you grow and persevere, but how do you persevere? These are all going to be from Hebrews. First, don't get lax so that you start to drift spiritually. Hebrews 2.1 Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've learned lest we drift away from it. You don't just wake up one day and abandon Jesus. It's a drift. The imagery there is like a boat that's slowly drifting away from the anchor of the shore and it's slow, it's imperceptible, but pretty soon you look around you're like, whoa. So there is a tendency to drift or backslide in the Christian life, but you've got to pay attention. Okay, second, these are all from Hebrews, okay? Second, give and receive encouragement daily from other believers. Hebrews 3 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. Okay, when is today not today? Tomorrow. 
What happens when it's tomorrow? It's today. Okay? So how often are we to be exhorting and encouraging each other? Every day, as long as it's called today. You and I need encouragement. We need strength. We need others speaking into our lives. We need to give and receive encouragement. That's the way that God grows you is by giving you the help of other believers in your life. (coughs) Excuse me. All right. Third, pray (coughs) with confidence. Put this back on. (coughs) All right. Pray with confidence that Jesus is always there to help you. What does Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 say? Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We always need help We always need encouragement. Pray with confidence for that help, and Jesus is always there to help you. He's there to sustain you. If you need help, ask Him. He loves to give you help. He's there. Okay, fourth. Again, these are all from Hebrews. Make attending Sunday worship a priority. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's that word encouragement again. Meet together, gather together, be together, encourage one another. Don't neglect not coming to Sunday morning worship and being part of a time of encouragement and growth. That's how God grows you, sustains you to the end. Fifth, Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus so you don't grow weary. Again from Hebrews chapter 12. Looking to Jesus or fixing your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There's a temptation in the Christian life to grow weary, to grow faint-hearted to get discouraged, to not want to keep going. So what do you do? Do you look inside for the answers? No, you don't look inside for the answers. Where do you do? You look to Jesus. You fix your eyes on Jesus. And then the book of Hebrews ends with a benediction or a promise or a prayer. So number six, believe the promise that Jesus will give you everything you need to persevere. Hebrews chapter 13, 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, here's the prayer, (coughs) equip you, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God will equip you with everything you need working in you to live for Christ. 
So let me give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon to close. Spurgeon said this, I cannot comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and lets the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus, such a gospel I abhor. If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul at last would fall a thousand times a day. Now here's the point. If you could lose your salvation, you would a thousand times a day. If it was up to you to keep yourself saved, your heart, my heart, is feeble, it's fickle, it's deceitful, we would fall away every second of every day if it was left up to us. But praise be to God, it's not left up to us. God ensures that we won't. He will work in us everything we need to stay the course so that, again, we won't fully, nor finally, nor totally fall away from a state of grace, but we will persevere to the end. Why? The Father chose us, Jesus died for us and is praying for us, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. All three persons of the Trinity are working in harmony to keep us saved to the end, and they'll never leave us or forsake us. So that is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, apostasy, and all of those things wrapped up into one teaching tonight. So, in the final moments we have, are there any questions that you guys may have? Yes, Marlo. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen God's Not Dead, so I don't, I don't, I, I'm not, I have not, I don't watch a lot of Christian movies. I'm one of the person, I've never seen The Chosen, I've never seen God's Not, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't usually watch those types of movies, but I don't, I don't, so what's your, I don't know, like on your deathbed, you mean, or? Yes, so deathbed salvations type thing, like, so let's say you lived a pagan your entire life and you never did anything good and they're on the final year. The, the theological answer is yes, you can be saved. Because biblical example of that. So here's the truth. Everybody's saved the same way by trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. Now, the one thing that we cannot do is we, can't, we, we do not have permission to look into a person's heart to determine whether it was genuine or not, okay? Only God knows that. So, yes, that can happen. Um, theologically, yes. Does it mean the same way? A person on their deathbed that prays the prayer to receive Christ or like a five-year-old that comes forward at an altar call and pray? I mean, are you saying, I could say that person, that kid's not saved. or what, The point is, is that theologically you're saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone whether that's as a five-year-old child or on your deathbed or you got in a car accident um, 
yes, the one thing we can't do is we can't look into somebody's heart. We can't judge somebody's salvation um, because we don't have permission to do that. And that's where it gets difficult. Because let's talk about apostasy. You may look at somebody and think, man, that person's an apostate. Or it could be that they're a true Christian that's at the bottom of their time of disobedience and God's about ready to discipline them and get them back. You don't know. Either way, what do you know? They're not living for Jesus. And what's the one thing they need to do? If they're not a believer, they need to repent and trust in Jesus for the first time. If they are a believer, what do they need to do? Repent and come back. So either way, their behavior may look the same, but the condition of their heart you don't know. So the one thing you can control is you can pray for them, you can warn them, you can tell them to repent, you can talk with them, but you can't look in the heart to see what's true. You have to trust God in that. I don't know if that answers your, your question, Mara. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Heather. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's because they were never chosen, yeah. So, if a person is not chosen, they won't ever come to faith anyway. So, the doctrine of election teaches that God passes over those that weren't saved and leaves them in that state of sin. This is a warning Theologically, it's the same thing. It's, they, they won't repent. But in the context of Hebrews, it's a very strong warning to those that may profess faith that are playing around and faking it to, to, to kind of really wake up to what they're doing. Because there could be a person that's faking it, that's pretending, that gets gripped by that, and they truly do become a Christian, meaning they haven't committed apostasy. But basically what this means is, and it's kind of a mysterious, is that somehow that person is obviously not chosen, but they place themselves in such a hardened, rebellious state that God basically says, if that's what you want, I'm going to give it to you and I'm not going to intervene. Does, does that make sense, Heather? It's kind of a hard... Did I, did I, did I answer that for you? Or was Okay. Yeah. That's a tough one. Anybody else? Scooby-Doo over there we have? Is that a great name? Okay. Questions from Scooby. Um, All right. We're good? So I think next week we're going to talk about assurance of salvation. Okay, so assurance of salvation. Here's the the question. We're not going to ask the question, how do you get saved? That's not the question. The question is, how do I know I'm saved? That's assurance of salvation. We've already talked about how you get saved. Assurance means, how do I know I'm saved? And it's tied to perseverance of the saints. So a lot of the same things we talked about tonight, it all flows together. So how do I know I'm saved? That's what we'll talk about next week. All right, let's pray. I told you we'd go almost to the full time tonight, so you guys had some good questions. So, Father, thank you for this time that we've um, gathered tonight. Lord, and we do thank you for this doctrine of, of eternal security, perseverance of the saints. It, it gives us hope to know that you keep us, you hold us, you are um, sovereignly guarding us to that final day when nothing can snatch us out of your hand. And we're so thankful for that. So, Lord, help that give us confidence. Uh, help us 